to Growing Your Successful Business, another week of uh, our podcast. It's about all things small business. Thanks for listening. Uh, and just a reminder, don't be afraid to tell a friend or a, a family member or a coworker. Uh, we're here every week. Um, my contact information, should you want to reach out to me, is uh, growingyoursuccessfulbusiness.com. That's one website. Or the other one is brianlharding.com. You can find all of our links to Facebook and YouTube on there. You can shoot me an email at brian at brianlharding.com. And today I'm super excited to have Sean Ottenbright with me from uh, Freedom Boat Club. And uh, for those of you who don't know who, what Freedom Boat Club is, I'll tell you as a proud member what that's all about here in a little bit. Um, Sean, along with his wife Tracy, they're the owners of the locations in Tacoma, Bremerton, and now Tacoma, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Olympia. Olympia, I'm sorry. Uh, Tacoma, Bremerton, Olympia. Uh, Sean's contact information, I'll get that to you a couple times, but the phone number is 253-414-0155 or pugetsound at freedomboatclub.com. And uh, you'll be happy to hear they have a five-star rating on both Google reviews and Facebook reviews, which is uh, pretty awesome. That's uh, You don't hear about a five-star rating on both of those very often. Um, I'll give you a brief history of Sean's background, and then I'll let him kind of expand on that a little bit more. Sean was a CFO, Chief Financial Officer for the Hewlett-Packard Company's marketing division. So we're talking a Fortune 100 company many years, not every year, but a lot of years, a Fortune 100 company. So uh, um, pretty decent creden credentials there, I would say. Uh, most folks would be pretty impressed by that, myself included. Um, and you kind of had a reputation there for being a hatchet man, if I remember right, right? You, uh, I did in uh, the last few years. Yeah, because yeah. yep. you were there kind of at the tail end of the, the nasty recession and all that kind of stuff. And and uh, I always kind of, whenever I think about that, I always picture them playing the Star Wars Imperial March song when you walk into a room and <laughs> <laughs> here yeah. comes Dr. Doom and, and uh, all that good stuff. Uh, so before we get to Freedom Boat Club, tell me about your your time at Hewlett Packard. So how did you begin there? What was your start at Hewlett Packard? Yeah, so I um, actually Hewlett Packard was a client of mine. So I started my career uh, out of university with Ernst and Young, okay. which is an accounting firm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You used to do the lotteries in Washington State. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And well, back in Saskatchewan, I started okay. actually gotcha. back in Canada, and uh, that was '96 uh, or something like that. So I think they just came out with laptops. So okay. I can't even wow. imagine how they did uh, global, you know, yeah. accounting for global companies with couriers. <laughs> yeah, and paper ledgers. And, right. You know. Yeah. Um, so that was pretty interesting. So that was kind of the start of my career. And, um, yeah, I, re I remember getting my first computer and uh, didn't quite know what to do with it. Right. You know, I think you could do a word program and, yeah. you know, you try <laughs> AOL, sure. you know, dial-up yeah, oh, yeah. and stuff like that back in college. So uh, th that's where I started from and uh, spent 13 years there. Um, got up to a senior manager, did a number of different projects uh, overseas, uh, spent some time in India. So really good, diverse um, time with Ernst & Young. And during that time, Hewlett-Packard was a client, so I had gone off to do another project for Ernst & Young and got a call from someone at Hewlett-Packard saying, hey, I'm moving on. Would you like to kind of move out of public accounting and into uh, industry? Right. So, um, yeah, took the leap there, and uh, that's happened a couple times in my career. I'm sure we'll talk about the leap out as well. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I went to Hewlett-Packard and then... Uh, um, started there in, in accounting and then kind of moved up as, uh, was hired specifically to be the hatchet man, um, mm -hmm. for a, a specific, uh, purpose, which was to restructure the company and turn it around. So, right. um, spent five years doing that. So I'm really excited for our listeners to have an opportunity to hear you talk because, um, accounting is one of those 
one of the core things in 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 running a business that really frightens people. It's scary. Accounting has tons of rules. It's kind of like legal in a sense that uh, it has major implications if you do it right or wrong. But it's one of the things that people are generally the weakest at when they start a business. Mm-hmm. Um, people generally start a business because they're good at the the craft. They're good at making or selling their widgets or their service or whatever. And uh, because they were really good at doing that, they begin their ven- adventure in business ownership. Right. And then all of a sudden, they're thrust upon it in this world of uh, accounting. And uh, they don't know what they, they, by and large, in my experience with folks, avoid it. Uh, mm-hmm. Oftentimes, their own peril or don't understand it and sub out the, the functions of understanding it and, and uh, kind of rely on people to, you know, uh, determine what the f- the health or whatever the company is, and then regurgitate back to them what their advice is. So they kind of right. sub subcontract out key decision making, which is probably not always the best case. So it was really really interesting to hear from you now as a small business owner yourself, but having a massive, of course, accounting background. I think you're going to have a lot of good stuff for folks. Um, so then you decide after how many years to leave Hewlett Packard. So I spent, um, again, I just hired for that specific role. So okay. I spent five years. The turnaround plan was five years. And the job I was hired for was to come in and uh, uh, streamline, to put it mildly, the yeah. marketing department. Uh, really wanted to understand where every dime was spent. You okay. know, we were spending $2 billion a year on, uh, on marketing. Right. And, uh, you know, had 6,000 people in the department, wow. uh, global company. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, we went in there and really tried to identify where every dime was. Mm -hmm. And, uh, at the end of five years, um, we spun off a number of divisions. So Hewlett Packard was a conglomerate. And at one point the annual revenue was $120 billion company. So it was a fortune 10, uh, you know, when it was, uh, I think the list I looked at last night was like, it was like number seven or something like that. At one point. Yeah, I know back in, I would say 2011, something like that, 12. Um, so we took those five divisions and split it into roughly, you know, five uh, $20 billion, $30 billion companies. Gotcha. Um, and so that was a five-year journey to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, the first year we started, there was no finance department in marketing. Um, wow. So the job was to go and create uh, you know, create a, a, a finance function that can control. So you're essentially creating a marketing company for Hewlett-Packard then? Yeah. the Basically, the back-end... Uh, financial structure mm-hmm. to be able to manage $2 billion and understand right. where it's going. Right. So we ended up with a team of 75 accountants all okay. around the world. Uh, by the time we started, started with three of us. And, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> yeah, just some fascinating decision-making that you make uh, when you walk in right. to that department and you have a global company with senior vice presidents that all own their budget at that time. Uh, Meg Whitman had come in, and she's the she's the CEO. Right. Uh, of the company. She's gone on since then, but um, just a, a tremendously bright lady, and she uh, wanted to figure out where all this was and uh, wanted an accountant to do that. Mm-hmm. After six months on the job, I suggested she hired should have hired a politician yeah. to do that, yeah. um, you know, because uh, yeah, people were not happy about that decision. So I spent the first, uh, my first major decision there was to basically blow up the existing chart of accounts. Right. So that's where, you know, hey, for the last 10 or 15 years, we've been doing it this way. So everyone knows where the money is, who owns it, right. you know, whose budget is what. Um, and there was like 20,000 uh, accounts 
mm-hmm. on a global company by wow. country, by you know yeah. this spend, that spend. Is it video? Is it yeah. social media? You know, you add that all up and you add it across a hundred countries, and you had twenty thousand accounts. Right. So the first decision was to basically blow that up uh, because had I not done that, um, the you know the other uh, divisions and and the senior vice presidents and everything they know where the money is. I don't. Right. I'm coming in looking for the money. Sure. And so what I had to do was do basically a zero-based budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once they finally lost track and figured out what was happening, they're like, where did my budget go? I right. Don't, I don't know. I, where, I, what am I spending it on? Right. You know, it's like, so I got a lot of phone calls. Yeah, uh, I'll bet. About who is Sean Outbright? What's he doing Yeah, what's he doing in my marketing budget? budget? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you did that for five years, and then your your contract essentially is up, and you're, it's time for you to move on? Is that kind of how it went? Well, we broke the company into five. And uh, downsized the division from 6,000 to 1,500 people. Hence your name, the Hatchet Man. Yeah, yeah, Dr. Kevorky and <laughs> yeah, yeah. the budget there. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, when the business isn't making money, yeah. um, you got to make some tough decisions. Sure. And so for the health of the rest of the company. Right. So by the time uh, we, I ended up in the parent company, which was where Meg was, uh, the last division that we had, and... Uh, yeah, you know, I figured after five years of that, um, it was time to go do something else. So yeah. took a restructuring package and was able to, you know, have some money there and, and right. to start use that to start a business. I've always wanted to start a business. Sure, had a small business when I was in college. Okay, for a couple of years selling smoked salmon. Okay, well, selling no brand, no name brand smoked salmon in Vancouver, Canada. Um, you know, was a bit of a challenge at right. eighteen years sure. old. Sure. So what I did learn from that experience though was. Hey, I really need to understand how to grow a company. And that's what took me into accounting. Yeah. And uh, so it was time to go back to, you know, what I originally went back to school for, which was I, I really wanted to start my own business one day. Gotcha. So how did you decide which business to pick? What, what, so for you, you ended up with Freedom Boat Club. What was your process in figuring out what was a good fit for you and your family? Yeah, so it was, uh, I think, like May 25th when I left uh, Hewlett-Packard. Of um, 2017? Of 2017, mm-hmm. yeah. And... Uh, I was looking at franchises, different businesses. I was considering boating, mm-hmm. you know, as a boating business. I thought I'd start my own. Right. So because you're a captain or a pilot or yeah. So I in college I um, commercial fished. Okay. And I went to University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Spent mm-hmm. the summers, three four months a year of the summers, going up and down the coast between mm-hmm. Vancouver uh, all the way to Alaska. Okay. Uh, just kind of fell in love with it out there. Yeah. Um, it was a pretty neat experience. Um, horrible job. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> you know, good good work. I learned some work, right. work ethic there sure. that I carried yeah. with me throughout the years. Um, but uh, you know, so I was looking at maybe starting a boating business. Mm-hmm. Um, had a kind of style of boats I was looking at, and then um, started looking at franchises. So I picked the Inc. 500 franchise magazine. I was mm-hmm. you know just about done there, shopping for groceries at Safeway, grabbed yeah. a couple of magazines, and uh, found that there was a boat club. In the magazine, and it was a top 300 out of the 500 franchises, you know, had a reasonable upfront investment. Right. And I'm, like, showing my wife. I'm, like, there's a franchise here. And it kind of took me down that path. I'm, like, I definitely want to, you know, this this looks great. And yeah. there's nothing on the West Coast in right. this area. Right. And, uh, you know, the real estate, that gr- the company's been around for 30 years, and uh, I know the boating in the area. So I'm, like, oh, you know, this, I need to grab this because it's going to go quickly. Right. But, um, so it was an opportunity where you had no competition, essentially, in this area. Yep. Uh, you're focused more on the South Sound, Comer, Bremerton, and Olympia so far. 
so zero competition. You had some capital to start with from your your parachute plan, yep. whatever you want to call <laughs> yep. that, right? Um, and you love boating, so that kind of that kind of seems like a pretty natural fit. Um, to fill folks in on what Freedom Boat Club is, for those of you who don't know, um, it's geared specifically towards people who want to become boaters um, and gives them an option of enjoying being a boater without the, the cost of actually having to buy a boat, right? Um, Freedom Boat Club is a national boat membership company with 180 locations across the United States, Canada, and in Europe. Uh, and allows folks to enjoy being on the water without all the typical hassles of boat ownership. And as a boat owner myself and a boat club, Freedom Boat Club member, um, it's pretty cool to go drop the keys off when you're done on the boat for the day and right. pay the bill for fuel and see you later and let you guys take care of the cleaning and and uh, maintenance and all that kind of stuff. And just I show up when I'm ready to go on a boat and I do my thing. I come back and, and uh, hand the keys and off I go. It's That's pretty sweet. Uh, and the concept's a lot like a country club. Um, members pay the initiation fee and then a monthly, monthly membership fee, and then they get access to the, the fleet of boats, and uh, and they get reciprocal access to boating places across, across the country, which in, like, Texas and Florida, there's, you know, probably yeah, 50 70 locations. of the yeah, 180 yeah, yeah, are in yeah, Florida, exactly. probably, or something like that. So yep. it's cool for people to hear, who live here that like to vacation in Florida. Mm -hmm. You can go over there and take care of that. And you have a wide range of boats, from pontoon boats to fishing boats, cruisers, uh, it's not like it's not a one-trick boat club at all for sure. And uh, one of the things I liked about it was Freedom Boat Club has a requirement for every 10 members you have to buy, you have to have a, a new boat. So as your membership grows, you're required to buy a new boat. So it's not one of those things where um, when you join the membership, you know, there's all kinds of room for using it. And then as it grows, it gets harder and harder to use. So that's really right. cool that you guys have that. Um, and one of the other things that's really cool about it is you guys teach people how to be boaters. You have all the unlimited training, and that's part of the membership. You don't you don't uh, charge for that. Uh, um, having been through the training, it's it's been really good. Um, and since you guys started in August of 2017, shortly after you left HP, then you then added two more locations, one in Bremerton and one in Olympia. So you guys now have 19 boats all together. So you guys are like growing like mad, which is fantastic. Um, so that's a little bit about Freedom Boat Club. Yeah. Right? Is there anything I left out there? No, that was uh, pretty comprehensive. Okay. Yeah. All right. So um, you left Hewlett Packard then in May, and you find this thing in a magazine, and uh, you decide to to go the, the Freedom Boat Club route. And now you've been in business for a couple of years. So uh, kind of take us through your journey. What are, what are some things? I'm really curious to find out, having left a Fortune 100 company, I imagine that uh, having the kind of role you had there and the title and the, uh, you know, you're talking to the CEO of HP, um, I imagine that uh, just human nature, you felt pretty confident about a lot of things and a couple of things probably smacked you in the head that you didn't see coming and right. and things that you were didn't you expected to be pretty simple given your background and all of a sudden you're like, holy crap, this is not nearly as easy as I expected it to be given my extensive background, this sh you know, the, uh, the I should have seen this coming or I should have known better or whatever. Uh, so I'm really curious to hear kind of those things as you as you go through your journey. So yeah, um, take us through it, man. Uh, what what um, what what are some of the things that you've encountered that that uh, are noteworthy in your two years so far with rapid growth? Yeah, um, I guess the I'll start just kind of at the beginning because a lot of people starting a new business, um, you know, hey, how do I get started? Right. I got the 
you know, it's complex. I got to get these, you know, business licenses and I got to, mm-hmm. you know, do, you know, this and um, get the accounting set up, get bank accounts set up. Yep. You know, it's that whole setup thing that yeah. is a big hurdle for a lot of people. It's like, well, you know, um, I did that in two days. Right. Um, you know, so it, it can be a hurdle mentally. But yeah. there's just a few simple steps in terms of, you know, registering a company, setting up a, yep. a company name, setting up some bank accounts, and, and really getting started. So um, folks kind of look at that administrative aspect of it, which is where my background was. Right. So I'm not saying everyone's going to do it in two days, but it's not as hard. That part of it is yeah. not as hard as uh, you know, I've seen and talked to a lot of new business owners and, and tend to get stuck a little bit. Yeah, and I think you know. that a, lo- a large part of that is, again, because they're, most people who are starting a business are coming from the industry they're starting a business in, and they just decide they're going to sell their widgets, and I'm just going to start selling widgets. And then they don't understand all the behind-the-scenes things that go into making you a legal entity to do that and mm-hmm. all the requirements for the state and registering and the, how the banking rules work and all the legal things. You know, what, what An operating agreement? What's an operating agreement? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, why do I have to have that? And why... What do you mean I need to have a buy-sell agreement? And, you know, just all those things that have nothing to do with your business that right. are all key components of being in business. Um, certainly your background would help you understand that, you know, just let's just get through that and yep. move on where I could see where that would stumble. You know, a lot of folks would stumble on that, yep. not understanding that that's even a thing. <laughs> you know? Right, exactly, exactly. Right. Um, and then when you're, you know, buying, you know, the, the basic business model was buy capital assets. Right. Um, so, you know, in the state of Washington, you can have a reseller's permit. Those were things that were key. So do what do I pay sales tax on? You know, right. That kind of thing. Um, so anyway, that, that whole component of it was, um, you know, done in, in a week. Um, right. And then uh, from the day that I saw it in a magazine to the day we opened was 11 weeks. Oh, wow. And so that included going to Florida to do the training, signing a franchise agreement, buying boats, yeah. getting a marina. I mean, it just rapidly happened. Yeah. Um, and I think in the history of Freedom Boat Club, that was the fastest yeah, uh, I would imagine. That's, that's pretty you know, quick. club ever to open sure. from, hey, I saw it in a magazine. Yeah. So, um, so that was kind of neat. Um, so at this time, I, I, I guess, so there's, there's, um, for me just being kind of the paranoid type that I am, but also a person who has, uh, had some success gambling and starting a business and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, in the decision to, to get a boating franchise in Western Washington, where there's zero competition essentially in your area, on one hand, it's a massive opportunity. On the other hand, the pessimistic side of me would say, well, if there's nothing here, there must be a reason there's nothing here. Was right. that part of any consideration that you thought about it? I mean, I would be excited about the prospect of doing it, but I would also be wondering, well, why hasn't somebody else done this if it's such a great opportunity? Right. Did, was that a factor in anything in your thinking at all? Yeah. No, I mean, there's a concern there, you know, but I had spent so many years boating in this area, and, you know, I had owned a private boat, you know, 36 foot in Gig Harbor. And, right. You know, if I was moving to somewhere where I didn't know. Sure. Um, and, uh, um, even in hindsight, so I didn't know at the time. So yeah, there was some concern about that. Yeah. Um, but having a knowledge of the boating and area, the outdoor lifestyle around here, right. people like to get out. And sure. the fact that, you know, there's no other options, there's no rental options. Yeah. Uh, it's very limited because of the way the insurance industry works now in boating. Um, okay. you know, so it's, it's difficult to rent anything. So other than buying, you know, there's, there was really no alternative. Um, and then the other thing I liked about the business model is, um, 
you know, the numbers actually made a lot of sense in right. terms of having a subscription model. It's something that builds over time. Yep. It does take time to build that into a profitable business. Sure. Um, but there was a good, clear trajectory. They allowed me to talk to any franchisees that I wanted to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got an opportunity to interview a lot of other owners. Nice. Get their understanding. Yeah, um, and, uh, yeah, but it's it was a leap at the end of the day. Yeah, it was, of course. It was still a leap. Yeah. You know, and particularly having a set of golden handcuffs, you know, in terms of walking away from a salary. Right. Uh, the biggest shocker for me has been healthcare. Right. Um, as a small business, I've never worried about it for, you know, 25 years. And yeah. all of a sudden, you know, It's a real thing. It's a real thing. <laughs> it's you a know, big you check gotta, you got to yeah, write. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, so that, that was how we got started. Um, and then from there, um, added a second location. So we initially planned to open multiple locations. So as part of the original agreement, uh, looking at the numbers. So one of the things I did was forecast the numbers and you can't be certain about your sales. Right. You no know, sales is a bit of a, okay, what should I, but the, the company gave us good guidance. It nice. wasn't, you know, don't be overly optimistic, you know, right. per location, you know, add this many per year. Um, and the numbers have kind of panned out, which is nice. Yeah. It's nice. Um, so, yeah, we had the second location and then now the third this year. So, so does, uh, and, and I, you know, I know some folks who have purchased franchises and, and are super excited about it. And I know some folks who have been franchisees and are not so excited about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's definitely pros and cons. One of the pr- massive pros is they give you the blueprint, they give you the roadmap. Um, and, and uh, you know, one of the massive cons is in that, once you establish yourself, you're kind of running your own business, but you pay that residual forever. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you, yeah. And some folks kind of begin to think, well, I've kind of paid for my education, and now this is mine, and I'm not really taking that education in so much, but I'm still writing a 2% check or 5% check or whatever it is at the yep. end of the month. Um, uh, but this is one of the nice things about going down the franchise path is they do lay it out for you, and that's something that many people who start their own businesses don't have that roadmap, mm-hmm. and they get hit by things that they just don't see coming and and oftentimes it's it's catastrophic. So one of the nice things about my point is one of the nice things about you know franchising is they lay it out for you, you know, and they give you things yeah. that you anticipate that you wouldn't otherwise anticipate probably. Absolutely. So I say the three things with this franchise: one, the business model, although it seems simple, buy capital assets, sell memberships, right, um, tends to be a little more complicated than that because of that requirement to add another boat every time you add ten members. Yeah. Right, so it's this step function. Yeah, you just get there, and then now add another one, add another one, add another one. Right, um, but it's what keeps it growing because people can get an access to a boat. Right. So I don't know that I would have figured that out. The pricing model uh, would have been a you know who knows. Yeah, uh, complete, sales and marketing. Wag, yeah, yeah, absolutely. sales and marketing uh, with the technology they give you. You know, sales and and uh, particularly direct sales to the consumer, an yeah. end consumer. Um, sales and marketing without the the technology, the CRM systems, the you know that that was not something that I had experience with, and uh, you know without that, yeah, you know, I, I did look at kind of build versus buy a franchise, and ultimately it came down to my wife Tracy saying, "You need someone that you could pick up the phone and call." Right. Yeah. You know, you're you're yeah. used to being in a giant corporation, and if you're just there by yourself designing reservation systems with yeah. some Good offshore, luck. you know, support. Yeah. Trying to build some sort of reservation. You'll spend years just trying to do that. Sure, absolutely. Um, and she was right. So yeah. it's been fun to work with a lot of other franchise owners. It's a fun business. Right. 
but you're absolutely right. I mean, as the, the franchises get bigger, they start to write the bigger checks. And uh, the neat thing about this one, though, is that uh, we offer reciprocal access, mm-hmm. which binds us all together. Right. You know, uh, if a member from here goes to Florida, the Florida franchise doesn't make any money. Yeah. But it just keeps continuing to grow the whole yeah. thing. So word of mouth advertising, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So um, you, you, you get through the, the paperwork, you get through the, the beginning parts of the, the franchising What's next for you then? What are what are some other things you encountered that you maybe didn't expect to or or uh, didn't quite go your way? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the one of the things that I did was I think I over I was overly concerned about being able to do the operations. I knew I need to understand how to run the club, you know. So I opened in August, right. which is the tail end of the boating season. Yeah, it makes no you know looking back you know from an outsider. In Washington, knowing that you're, you know, you, you got a month and a half of boating season left, yeah. why in the world would you start in August? Why wouldn't you start it in January, February, and kind of, you know, Build get the momentum? And then around May, when you hit the the real start of the boating season, you kind of got things going. Right. It does look, you know, counter. But I can also look, put myself in that situation back then and say, who's to say it's going to take you six weeks or six months to get up and running? You know, maybe right. you, if you started in January, you might've been three months late. Now you're a year and a half out instead of, instead of being a six months right. too early or three months too early. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. And so I, I over-rotated on, you know, I want to really get the operations in place. I want to figure out how to do this. That'll give me some time. It's not going to be as busy, you know, thank, uh, and then the reality of it, it was largely a tax strategy. Um, so I did get, most of my, you know, I was paying a lot in taxes. Right. So I was able to. You had to, dimin- you had to, to work that, whittle that number down as much as you could. In yeah, get it all. You know, <laughs> yeah, that covered right. my startup costs. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, my operating loss yeah. was covered by, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, I depreciated the boats and, and got a lot of the, you know, yeah. the taxes. Back. And this is one of the things for, for folks um, who kind of put accounting on the back burner and minimize the impact and the importance of it in, in a business is tax strategy is a real thing and it it has it can have massive implications good or bad mm-hmm. and if you're not aware of those things even know the implications they can have you're probably not making good choices that are going to cost you uh tens or more thousands of dollars in a year or several years because you're not taking that into consideration and if it was you know if if you um if you had your tax liability as a line item on your P&L, mm-hmm. um, and you could say, like, you looked at percentage of revenue of marketing or labor or whatever, uh, people would probably change their thinking a little bit more. But it's kind of an abstract thing. It just kind of hangs out there. It's not necessarily right. something you can just point out on a P&L and have a, you know, understand your, you know, connecting the dots to your five-year plan or one-year plan or whatever. Right. It can be a little trickier for that. So it's it's something people have to be mindful of, but there's nothing to remind you to be mindful of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's, right. Uh, it's kind of a tricky thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, um, it's interesting with larger companies, it becomes, the accounting for that is actually pretty complex because you get yeah. all these deferred tax assets. And if I was really doing my books, you know, to, to the level of a corporate set of books, you can track your, you know, your uh, marginal tax rates and stuff like that. Yeah. So for large companies, but um, it's, it's super complex. So in that scenario, uh, you bring up a great point, Brian, because, uh, you know, what is your actual tax rate? And then, that's something that a CPA can help you with, right? Um, you know, towards the end of the year, but keeping it more front of mind as you're going forward. So I had a another franchise owner call me, and he uh, doesn't have the he's this 
uh, just an amazing salesperson. Yeah. So that's how he got into opening a Freedom Boat Club. Right. You know, he's a good salesperson. And he actually was a, a salesperson for the club yeah. in, in Florida. And that's um, kind of one thing. My, one of my thoughts was as you were talking about all this accounting stuff and how you, uh, your, your plant, you know, in part of your first year startup six months maybe or four months earlier than, than probably most folks would have, you were looking at it from an accounting standpoint. Accounting is obviously your strength. And you mentioned sales a few minutes ago. And I imagine that with a strong accounting background, sales is probably not your strength. You're probably not on the same level of sales as you are accounting. Or if you are, you're like a unicorn. There's not very many folks in this world <laughs> that are equally good at sales and accounting. There's plenty of folks who are equally bad at sales and accounting. Right. There's not a whole lot of folks who are really good at being a, a, a accounting kind of person and really good with people and schmoozing and sales and all that kind of stuff. Yep. Um, is that kind of true for you, or, or would you say you're kind of a, a 10 at both of those? I would definitely not say I'm a 10 at both of those. <laughs> um, but I would say that I've improved you know, on the sales side. Yeah. From probably a two, yeah. you know, to a seven. <laughs> to a seven and a half. Yeah, yeah. seven and a half. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, and a lot of that was the training. I mean, you know, one of the things I credit to just improving, and, th- and that's interesting because it's your strengths and weaknesses. Right. You know, what do you focus on and, and not over-rotating on what you know well yeah. and, and trying to improve in other areas or hire, you yeah. know, um, for that position. And and, and in know. my experience with with helping folks in their own businesses and things like that. Once people recognize I'm not a good salesman, the logical next step is then I'm going to hire a good salesperson. And the problem with that is managing an outside salesperson, in my experience, is the most difficult job there is. Um, Being an outside salesperson is not necessarily all that hard if you're a good salesperson, but managing that person is extremely difficult. And then if, if, you have no, if you're not a good salesperson yourself and you don't know what the expectation should be and you don't know what the process should be and you don't want to know what the results should be and you don't know what it's like to be in the sales world, mm-hmm. it's nearly no impossible. For, how could you possibly manage no a person? Idea. You can't do that job. Yeah. And so for folks who, who are in this situation where they're good at, at the operations side or the accounting side or whatever, they're not good at the sales side, they've got a real problem there mm-hmm. because you need to hire a person, but you are not a good person to manage the person you have to hire and what in the hell do you do then? Right. <laughs> it's the most difficult job there is. Um, being an outside salesperson is not necessarily all that hard if you're a good salesperson, but managing that person is extremely difficult. And then if, it, if, you have no, if you're not a good salesperson yourself and you don't know what the expectation should be and you don't know what the process should be and you don't want to know what the results should be and you don't know what it's like to be in the sales world, mm-hmm. it's nearly no impossible. For, how could you possibly manage no a person? Idea. You can't do that job. Yeah. And so for folks who who are in this situation where they're good at, at the operations side or the accounting side or whatever, they're not good at the sales side, they've got a real problem there mm-hmm. because you need to hire a person, but you are not a good person to manage the person you have to hire. And what in the hell do you do then? <laughs> right. So uh, thankfully, Freedom Boat Club um, uh, put all the systems and processes in place. And so I'd never touched a CRM before. Right. You know, um, you know, knew a lot about marketing, nothing about sales. Uh, so we were able to generate leads. You know, what do you do with them? So they actually made me sell the first 30, 40 memberships myself. Perfect. Yeah, that's awesome. Learn the process. Yeah. You can't, you know, you have to do this. You need to either figure it out or, you know, somehow. Yeah. But you're not just going to go find a salesperson and know what to do. Yeah, that's fan- That's fantastic advice. Yeah. Yeah, so they did force us to. You, you sell I guess the, I call it advice. It's not if they force yeah. you, it's not really advice. Well, right? they're yeah. I mean, it was advice. You know, they're pretty pretty laid back, but uh, you know, I, I it was strongly encouraged, so I did it. <laughs> um, 
And uh, yeah, so I sold the first 30. I'm very energetic, passionate about it. You know your business. Sure. You, know, you know what kind of value for the area, the training I'm passionate about. So yeah. it kind of comes across. Um, and then, you know, you had to hire for that position. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's uh, still a challenge. And that's, but that's what pays the bills. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so on top of, you know, I keep going back to the outside sales thing because it is one of the things that I, I coach folks on the most. And it is one of the most challenging because when you hire somebody, first of all, again, you're not very well equip, equipped generally to be the, the manager of that person. Um, but then you're looking at six to 12 months to figure out the person you hired is productive or not. Mm-hmm. It takes 90 days to train. It takes 90 days to fill a pipeline to even begin filling leads. And you're six months in before they even kind of get equipped uh, procedurally, know the product, and have a pipeline full to see if they even begin converting. You're six right. months in before you can even start measuring their, their conversion rate right. and their success rate. And then you need to give them probably three to six months to figure out once you start measuring those things, how to make improvements if necessary or mm-hmm. whatever. So you're looking at, you know, depending on the industry, you're looking at a sixty to $100,000 investment per time you hire somebody. That's not a small number to, to, no, to a big play number. with yeah. uh, when you're just starting out or a year or two old. Um, and so, so, you know, not only is this a complicated problem for folks to have, it is it can be a make or break problem for folks to have. Uh, it's it's absolutely uh, it's absolutely essential to have that right yeah. sales process in place, and the right uh, person, and the right person. Yeah, and we've been fortunate. We you know we've gotten a good salesperson. Uh, didn't start out as a you know you know uh, had sales in the background and then um, and then uh, had some marketing background and stuff, but right. really well well rounded. And, um, for our business at the time was a, was a good fit. Yeah. So, um, but at the same time, I recall you, we had this conversation before Yeah. and, uh, you know, one of your, your advice was, you know, as a, as an owner, you can't let go of the sales. Right. And so in fact, you know, when it's a difference of three or four or five more sales a month, that makes a huge difference at the end of the year. Yeah. Um, you know, my wife and I, we do, we do still do sales and yeah. we support that salesperson and, you know, we keep tweaking and, and, uh, you know, as you grow and as we grow quickly, you know, that's some, somewhere where we'll probably have to add a, a second salesperson. Right. And, and one of the reasons I said that for you specifically is because your model is buy boat, sell memberships. You yeah. know, again, it's, it's, it's simple, but it's not easy, but it's, it is simple. I mean, if you just look at the math of what the process is. Yeah. And as the market changes, good or bad, in, in for your potential customers, if you aren't tuned into what that sales process looks like today, and you're not empathetic or uh, supportive of the situation your salesperson's in, mm-hmm. you're going to make terrible decisions as a sales manager. Uh, if you're not aware of what today's market is like, and their their conversion rate lower, you know, goes down because something has changed that you're not tuned into, you'll mm-hmm. just assume they're doing a bad job and you'll fire them, or they'll end up quitting. And because you didn't know what they were they were facing on a day to day basis, and you if you're not equipped with that, how can you possibly manage that process? How can you possibly manage your own expectations? Right. Um, well, so one of the things that you end up doing is over rotating on marketing and just for, you know spending leads, gobs yeah. of money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, Which is funny for you to hear, <laughs> being the guy who was the hatchet man in the marketing department. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm pretty conscious of where they're coming from. What's the rates? What's the leads? And again, having a system that can catch all that. Right. And uh, sift through it and stuff, yeah. so I can, you know, I can tell you which, uh, 
know, where each lead came from, you know, right. for the most part, up to 90%. You know, yeah. there's some you just people don't know. Where did they hear about it? But yeah. um, And how much that lead costs. Yeah, how much that lead costs, yeah. what's the conversion rate. Which conversion rate, rate and the therefore what's my cost per membership. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and, that, yep. and again, that's something that um, for most folks in most industries, in most situations that don't have an accounting background, don't have a numbers kind of background, um, I don't think they understand why you would even track that. And if you're not tracking that information and you are spending a lot of money in marketing, uh, it's critical, you know, that you do you understand what that lead costs you. Because um, if you don't, it's just, it just goes into a big bucket at the end of the month and it's easy to lose sight of why each lead is so important. But if you right. know it costs you $642 to get that lead, you're going to treat it a whole lot different than yeah. I just spent $12,000 in marketing this month. Right. Right, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, I, it's definitely the hardest part of the business. Um, it can be a lot of fun. Yeah. It actually can be a lot of fun, too. Uh, you know, we, we sell a product where people come in, they're excited yeah. to join, they get the training, and they're out there with their families. You know, so it's it's uh, it's pretty rewarding. But they all come in a little skeptical. Yeah, of course. You know, it's like, ah, oh, you know, is this uh, is this a real thing? It sounds too good to be true. Yeah. And, um, well, in today's world, we've we've all been burned by things that sound too good to be true, and and, and they in fact are. So right. it, uh, it's just kind of we're all kind of being um, we're, we're developing calluses on the <laughs> on that part of our psyche to kind right. of be prepared to be let down. So yeah, and and, and uh, I'm really envious, to, you know, coming from an industry where when people call us, it's like going to the dentist. You know, you don't <laughs> if you're calling a plumber because you got a basement full of sewage. It's right. not a super exciting time to reach out and make a phone call. We're, right. you know, calling you and saying, "Hey, the weather looks like it's gonna be seventy-eight degrees on Sunday. I want to, I want a boat, man. This is gonna be awesome." That I'm, I'm pretty envious of that of that uh, situation of having yeah. customers looking forward to calling you. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's it's neat. I do like that part of it yeah. for sure. Yeah. So, what other kind of stuff have you encountered uh, making a switch from massive corporations to small business ownership that you mm-hmm. you didn't anticipate or have been uh, life lessons along the way? You know, I've always worked a lot. Mm-hmm. So even as your responsibility grows in a corporation, you know, um, and looked around at the time, this part of why I want to open my own business was, uh, you know, you look around and, you know, there's a lot of folks in, you know, 60, and I'm getting up there. I'm not there yet, but I'm right. getting up there. And, what are you, 50 uh, ish? Uh, 46. 46, yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, looking around, you know, people stressed and, and not enjoying, uh, you know, so at that time I wanted to open my own business at some point, you know, it seemed like the right time to do it. Right. Um, but it is a lot of work. So yeah. it hasn't, that part of it hasn't changed. You know, we're, we're, and that's another conversation you and I had before yeah. about, you know, how did that first three years feel? Four right. years, you yeah. know, it's, uh, it's a it lot. Sucked. Of, That's <laughs> yeah. It sucked a lot. <laughs> it, it worked all the time, <laughs> yeah. all the time. You know, and and the way I, I look at it or the way I discuss it, you know, with, with members and stuff like that is it's my job to um, take care of your recreational time. Right. It's a value commodity yeah. that people have, and I take that commitment seriously. Um, and then at the same time, i got to make sure these boats are running, the operations side of it, the, tr- the people, the, mm-hmm. the dock support, the customer service, and scaling so quickly right. and uh just trying to stay on top of all of it at once yeah, yeah. so yeah. that i think is uh you know don't underestimate how much time it's gonna take to yeah uh, no there, there's uh no question if you're gonna start your own business um it's it's pretty easy math to look at the look at it and say this next three to four years i'm not going to have a life outside of this yeah and 
the hope being I'm going to make this massive investment now and get a, a pretty good return later where things will balance out for a while. And then the, this, the pendulum will swing the other way. And I've got enough free, I got more free time than, than the average guy right. uh, or the average citizen or whatever, average employee. But that first three to four years, it's, it, the scale is, is not even close. I mean, it's, it's tipped so far out, out of whack. Um, I, I often, I chuckle when I talk to folks who are, um, you know, 18 months into 36 months in, and uh, I hear the term work, li- uh, work home balance or life balance. I, I just say, you, yeah. if you're having that conversation, you know, with yourself internally or externally, you either stop that conversation entirely or, or go do something else. Right. Uh, because it, there's, there's no room for that in this phase. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I invested 25 years into my career and built that up to, you know, yeah. if you think about it like a business, you know, hey, pretty good annual revenue return. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, that was uh, that was a huge time investment, too. So the, the, you're right that the objective here is to build something that, you know, four or five years down the road. I've got an asset there that I've built. Sure. Uh, you know, I did it for companies before, but now I own that asset. Right. And, uh and long term, yeah, I do have a little more free time or retirement or something to pass on to the kids, and yeah, you know, so yeah. So you kind of went through the, the the lessons the first year, the timing and the sales process, which wasn't your strength. Um, you know, this the beginning of the second year rolls around. What what are some of the challenges you, you faced then? Uh, beginning of the second year was opening a new location. Um, so you add a second location. It's not twice the work; it's four times the work. Yep. But um, but you're doing that because you had reasonable success at least on the first one. So you've got to feel pretty good about opening a second one. You kind of know what it's going to take. Yep. To you kind of been down this road recently. You haven't forgotten what it took a year ago. Yep. Um. But yeah. So now you have second location. You're you're four times the work. Right. And and not four times the the return. Right. No, no you got to build the <laughs> yeah, revenue. Forty percent right? of the yeah. return yeah. probably yeah. instead of hundred yeah. percent of the return. Yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, you know, this is a scale business. It works great at scale. Yeah. And so the faster you scale that business um you know you're gonna have challenges along the way to do that but uh you know the more geography people like to boat next to their house yeah they don't want to drive for two hours yep. to get to the boat yep you know that's the i may as well buy one yep you know so the more locations you have the more value it adds to people you right. know you got another location you can head out of bremerton instead of heading out of tacoma go over to seattle and mm-hmm. Um, so just the, the market concept of that was what was really underpinning that. Right. Um, and, you know, so that was part of it there. And then adding, getting up to 10 boats, getting a little more serious on maintenance, you know, fast forward to year three and a third location, 19 boats. And, you know, it goes from this is in my head or in my operations manager's head to, we need written procedures, we need processes, yeah. you know, we need the right people, the training. So it's it's another dynamic again now with a third location. It's not again another, you know, double the work. It's six times the work. Yeah. And everything starts to become more formalized. Yeah. And that's really neat to see. You know, cuz that gets me back to where, you know, you're in a corporation and there's processes and right. you know things kind of people know what to do. Well, you have to build all that. Yeah. And and yeah. one of the things that's key in this phase especially when you have multiple locations is you can only be in one place at one time mm-hmm. and you can only communicate with two people at one time, the person you're standing next to and the person you're on the phone with. So now with three locations, there's at least one that has to be able to run successfully without you being there or being immediately involved. Mm-hmm. And you have to begin uh, turning over your baby to somebody 
And um, for some folks, having the trust and the ability to turn that over to somebody else is unimaginable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really, really a challenge for a lot of folks to to uh, take a key component of responsibility and say, okay, I'm handing this to this person to take care of. And uh, how, how do you do with that? Some some folks really struggle with that. Some folks, it's no big deal and it's just a piece of cake. But I think for most folks, they want to maintain control of that because mm-hmm. it is their entire livelihood invested in it. Right. Um, right. You are literally, have, you know, you have a babysitter there for your child that you're handing. It's very similar right. to that kind of a scenario. Yeah. How do you how do you deal with that? Is that something you'd struggle with or no? Um, I don't struggle with it from a concept of having but um, someone else do it. But, you know, will they do it to the same level? Right. Of, no. Uh, you know, <laughs> That's so, a pretty easy answer. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, the, so the way we manage that is, again, we've, we started to put in procedures, expectations. I mean, just hiring people for seasonal-type jobs and trying to get them trained is, is months. It's a nightmare. It's yeah. months of work. And then find someone who can drive a boat. Right. You know, yeah. So you got to teach them to drive a boat. You got to yeah. teach them to do this. You got to teach them about the safety. You got to. These are things that we need these people to know to be able to communicate with members. Right. right? At the end of the day, it's the members that we're taking care of. So, one of the the eye openers this year for me was I've spent a lot more time on the dock. Yeah. Down with the frontline employees. Right. So I don't have to be in that location all the time, but getting to know the people that are in that location. Yeah. What are they doing? Yeah, um, and why are they doing it? Yeah, having uh, another way you can manage some of that is having a call, you know, call rail or something like that, recording the inbound calls and mm-hmm. stuff. So periodically being able to hear what what the customers hearing, yeah. what the prospects hearing. Yeah, um, does that sound like things are going okay? So there's ways that you can still keep tabs on what's going on and, and make sure that it's meeting that level of service. Without right. having to be there twenty four seven, and you bring up a great point there. Um, if you have uh, customers calling in and you are not recording those calls, you're doing yourself a giant uh, disservice. Uh, and in in anything that you have employees or even peers doing, if you're a manager or whatever, um, people behave entirely differently when they know that somebody is paying attention to what they're doing. So if you have a person who's answering phone calls and and in a you know inside sales kind of role or something like that, and you're not monitoring those calls and doing coaching with them weekly, monthly, whatever, they're going to behave entirely differently than if they know that you're going to be listening to even a random sampling of those calls. Yeah. And so if if that's a key component of your business and you're not listening to that, um, you know you're 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 killing you, yourself. You, yeah, you have no idea what's going on. Yeah, right. And like you said, you can't be everywhere. Right. So. And if and and your customer, you could be chasing customers away. Those leads you paid six hundred forty-two dollars for, right. you could be chasing them away, not even knowing it, and then you're beating up the salesperson who may not even be at fault for doing anything wrong, and you right. you just don't know. And uh, yeah, yeah. And again, just people behave differently. Um, you you know, I, a saying I heard a million years ago, and kind of a Six Sigma or Kaizen kind of thing was, you have to inspect what you expect, mm-hmm. and if you don't, you're going to get an entirely different result. Uh, so that, that's that's great advice is to be you know tuning into those calls once in a while and listening to what what's really going on yep um so we're we're just about out of time here a couple things i want to ask you with your uh pretty extensive accounting background um you know for folks who again aren't you know accounting is not their strength they don't understand it they don't like it whatever give us you know what are three basic fundamentals people can start with if they don't know a lot about accounting what um what what are what are you know three two or three or one even one thing you know we'll just just give us some ideas on what to key into in the accounting side or what to focus on educating your you know if you 
if you're not going to you know, go to school to become a CPA, which I wouldn't recommend for most folks, what's, not one, at, not at what's, all, what's one piece of it you yeah, need yeah. to really focus in on to, to make good decisions if you're a business? Yeah, I would say um, a lot of people focus on the bank account, mm-hmm. right? So do I have money in the bank or not yeah. when you're first starting? Right. Right. Um, you could have money in the bank today, but do you know that it will be there next month? Right. You're not going to know that without a set of financial statements. Yeah. Okay? And each financial statement has its own purpose. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people will understand a P&L or a profit and loss statement, you know, um, that is a statement that says, okay, here's the revenue that I brought in. Here's the cost or the expenses. Mm-hmm. So here's my payroll. Here's my rent. Here's, you know, all the other things. Uh, maybe it's the cost of the item if you're selling a good. You right. know, here's what I bought it for. Here's the margin that I make on it. Yep. Um, so you have cost of goods sold. So just understanding, um, you know, the, the financial statements. And there's ways to, you know, there's a book you can get on that to, to understand what is a profit and loss statement. What can right. I expect to see from that? What is a balance sheet, you know? Because a lot of times uh, I'll get calls from other, even, you know, boat club owners or other business people. And it's like, yeah, uh, my CPA said that, uh, you know, the uh, boat payments are on the balance sheet. What's that mean? <laughs> you know, I can't see it. It looks like I'm making money, but, yeah. uh, you know, I look at my bank account. and yeah. So then I explain the fact that, you have, you know, we, we finance the boats and the, and the interest expenses in your P&L. Yeah. But the principal payments are on the balance sheet. So go over and look over here right. in the reduction that month in your uh, liability Yeah, you know, for boat payments. And, and that's right. where you see the other part of it. So just understanding unique to your business, depending right. on what that business is, really understanding the business model. And then how does that translate into this profit and loss statement and the balance sheet? Yeah. And the third thing is the statement of cash flows. And I find that people find that the most hard to understand. Yeah. Well, it's the most complicated for sure. If, yeah. you're, if you're starting from zero to learn accounting, it's the, the cash flow statement is by far the hardest one to, to get to a, a reasonable understanding of. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the one that is most, it's funny because it is the hardest one to understand, but it's the one that people have really are asking. That's the question they're asking. The question you have. I got this much in the bank now. How much is going to be in the bank next month? Right. You know, it's it's only by understanding the statement of cash flows that you can actually project that forward, which right. is the most complicated. Right. So it sounds like one of the things you would you would recommend for folks is is getting a grasp of some some kind of cash flow analysis or forecasting tool to understand where you're going to be next month because you don't want to be at the end of the month and have you know $148,000 in bills due and you've got $62,000 in your checking account and a, not having the money to pay the bills is a massive problem, but B, not understanding how you got there is probably, right. probably a bigger problem, right? And I think that's probably a real thing for most business yeah. owners is is uh, unless you have a model like a franchise or something like that to, to follow, uh, that's probably a real thing is is not understanding how you got there. And one thing you said that's, that's I think is key earlier when we first started talking was um, as a business owner, you have to understand that your role First of all, you have a million roles now, mm-hmm. but one of them is to force yourself to take time away from the day-to-day stuff to educate yourself on these other things, strategize, plan, create your your vision, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And how in the world do you find time for that? You're already working 60 hours a week doing the the making and selling the widgets and then doing the accounting at night and the invoicing at night and all that kind of stuff. Right. Where in the world do you find time to spend you know, five hours a week planning and figuring out cash flow statements. I mean, it's just, because it's not a right now emergency thing, people just, I think, just tend to push that stuff off. But that is probably one of the most critical things you got to be doing. And so, yeah, um, you know, I, that's probably by I scheduled large. it, you know, that's what I did. I um, I knew that 
I'm going to over-rotate. I, I like the strategy part of it, but it's just not in, in enough hours in the day. Yeah. Um, so what I did was join a, a group of, of actually the, the franchise provide is Freedom Boat Club owners. Yeah. So 20 of us get together three times a year, monthly submit our numbers. We're able to compare our numbers across each nice. other. How are we performing? Right. How many memberships did you sell? What's the best idea? We have this little contest. Who, you know, what's the best idea? Yeah. And everyone puts the money in the pot each meeting nice. three times a year, see who comes up with the best idea. But it's just the fact that we're generating ideas. And yeah. Under, you know, here's some new stuff. Here's what I've been thinking. Here's what I've been struggling with. And you can do that in, uh, you know, I think something like even listening to this podcast. Right. You know, talking with other business owners, the experience I've gotten, the people I've met at Ignite U mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, other networking groups and just getting to know other business owners, part of the chambers. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be a 20 group, but, uh, yeah. you know, it's a group of, you know, other business owners that you can sit down with and say, you know, yeah. learn something. No, I would definitely for, and for, I, I can't, I can't imagine there's any industry where there isn't an industry association that's across the country where, you can't get a look, get uh, get together with people annually or quarterly or monthly via Zoom meeting or something like that, right. and just um, and each bring in your own strengths to the table, and uh, you know. So I would recommend for anybody join an industry association to to help you kind of get through that stuff for sure. Um, so you you started two years ago. You're off to a, a rocket start. You have 129 members now. Is that right? Yeah, somewhere in, in that in, uh, neighborhood. Less yep. than two years. That's pretty phenomenal. I'd say yep. that. Uh, because I mean, we're not we're not talking about a a mortgage payment here, but this is not it's not forty dollars a month either that you're, right. you're selling memberships for. Right. So that's, I think that's pretty remarkable. What what do you attribute that part to? So you've had you've had success in that area. What what what's your secret on that? You think? Um, you know, it's uh, I think it's a it's a good business model. We offer a good product. You know, we did buy boats that are good for the area. Right. You know, you're not just a bunch of you know low end. Know, it's something you can go out in and feel safe and confident. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I think the training has been a big part of it. A lot of people that are out there looking. It's, so it's around the market conditions and what we're offering. I mean, you know, the trend is towards not owning big capital assets. Right. So being on that, that was another part of the decision to, you know, this actually makes sense as a business, even right. though it's not here yet, yeah. is you know, you look at those books like Megatrends. I remember back in the 80s or 90s, you know, yeah. looking at these Megatrend books. And, yeah. And, uh, and being on the right side of that trend mm-hmm. for, you know, future growth and looking at, you know, when I started, we had 115 locations. Um, it's not just been the growth here locally. It's been the growth that we're at to 190 right. locations in two years. Yeah. Um, we just got purchased by a major corporation. Yeah. Um, so I feel really good about the fundamentals and why it makes sense in today's economy. Yeah. Um, that it fits a need and, you know, millennials, you know, don't have big yards to store boats. And they're not going to buy houses as much as previous generations. Yeah. Yeah, You know, so, so all those aspects to it, uh, you know, I think have helped. And the economy, you know, turning around the last 10 years certainly didn't hurt. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. You know, the, the the interesting thing about this business is it's a um, it works good in both an up and down. Sure. So as an accountant, uh, one of the things I looked at before investing in a business, because I always said, you know, businesses need accountants, yeah. whether they're growing or downsizing. Right. Right. And I've been on both sides of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, because you still need to manage that process. Right. Um, the, the nice thing about this business is, you know, that decision to buy a boat, 
um, or, you know, is um, impacted by the economy itself. Right. So number one, the economy is really strong here locally. I'm really fortunate to be where we are. Yeah. Um, and then the trend here is the ad econ- the economy here takes a little longer to get started than it does on the East Coast. Yeah. They'll take three years to slow down. Right. More than the East Coast. Mm-hmm. So you just watch the East Coast and you say, okay, I got another three years. Right. And when that starts to turn down, uh, which it will, there's business cycles. Yep. Um, then you know, folks that still want to get out and enjoy their recreational time. That's not going to change. Right. But what changes is, oh, I can do this for this amount of money, and I don't have to make that big capital investment. Maybe interest rates are 12% at that point in time. Right. You know, there's another factor. So yeah. Con- they start jacking up interest rates. Economy go- slows down. And all of a sudden, it's more expensive to buy. Right. And more, it looks more attractive yeah, to let me able. pay the interest yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Great stuff, man. I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, again, if you want to get a hold of Sean, you can call him at 253-414-0155 at the Freedom Boat Club in Tacoma, uh, Bremerton, and Olympia. Uh, or you can reach out at Puget Sound at freedomboatclub.com. Um, or you can come see him in person, the Foss Harbor Marina in Tacoma, the Bremerton Mar- Marina, or the Swantown Marina in Olympia. Um, thanks again, man. I really appreciate you coming on. You brought a ton of great information. I'm sure that folks listening were able to to, to glean a lot from this. Um uh, for those of you listening, if you like what you're hearing and you're interested in sponsoring our program, uh, that would be awesome. You can reach out to me at brian at brianlharding.com. Um, next week, we're going to have Joanne Mitchell-Sandberg on to talk about her 30 years of running a carpet cleaning business and a now re- re- remediation business, a uh, water restoration kind of business. Uh, uh, it's going to be fantastic to hear from her. And uh, that's all for today. Thanks again, Sean, for coming on. You're, you're yeah. absolutely awesome. And uh, we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for having me, Brian.